from the nation's capital, this is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast with your host, Rob Snow White. Welcome to the podcast. My name is Rob Snow White. This is part one of the Native Fish Coalition episode brought to you by Cool Tan. Kids, if you're listening while your parents are playing this and you're in the back seat on the way to vacation, be happy. People don't smoke in cars like they used to when I was a kid. Don't bother your parents as they listen. You can hold it for another half an hour. And every time you ask, it's five minutes longer. Don't you make me pull this podcast over. Okay, we're done with that now. You already know Dr. James Seleski. Now it's time to meet Bob Mallard. That's Mallard with an M as in the duck. Bob Mallard is a founding member of the Native Fish Coalition. Their role is to protect, preserve, and restore native fish populations through stewardship of the fish and their habitats. He served as NFC's national vice chair from its inception until April 2020 when he stepped down to assume the role of executive director. Bob also serves as a member at large on NFC's main board. He has written several books and numerous articles. Before we get started, let's talk about preventing tan lines. Get your tan on without looking like you're wearing a white t-shirt and undies when you get home from a damn vacation or a day on the drift boat. Now you can get a tan through the most comfortable, best looking swimsuits and shirts in the world. Whether you're casting from the beach, on a drift boat, on an inner tube, or just wearing your floaties at the pool, you can now get natural suntans right through the fabric. The cool tan line of swimsuits and shirts not only let you get sun right through the fabric, they're also lightweight, very comfortable, and dry very quickly. I'm a big fan of the polo and the v-neck. They're lightweight, the wind goes right through them, but you can't see through them. Yes, I wear these to the pool, I wear them gardening. I've been wearing the shorts now for about two months and I love them. Roll up my sleeve, I don't have a tan line. Yes, you still need to wear sunscreen underneath them. Visit tanthrough.com for more information. Find them on the Amazon link via the podcast notes. And now we are going to go to Maine and Pennsylvania for our first call with two guests. I should say welcome back, James. And we have with us Bob. Bob, congratulations on finding the Titanic. That was great. Yeah. Yeah. They got they spelled my name wrong though. Yeah, yeah. sorry about that. Yeah. You could have been in with hanging out with James Cameron. You know, they spelled my last name wrong too. <laughs> Something about right, divorce. So, yeah. yeah. So Bob, where are you now? I am in central Maine. Ooh. A place called Skowhegan, Maine. I'm sure the weather's kind of nice right now. Uh, it's kind of hot after we've had a really cold spring so far. I just got back from Eight nights in the woods, we were having some 40s, 40-degree nights, 60-degree um, days. So it was unseasonally cold. June was real cold, but she's 80 today. So Wow. <laughs> Yikes. And for those who may have not met you or seen pictures of you, is there a celebrity you have ever been compared to that people can picture as they oh, listen? My, uh, um, yeah, some pretty bad ones, actually. I was a young, in my 35 probably 35 years old, some uh, kid came up to me in an airport 
and thought I was Richard Petty, who I think was 70 years old at the time. Um, so it was quite the insult. And uh, Richard Petty, the NASCAR driver. And then um, back when I had kind of, um, you know, style and at the time mullet, um, a kid came up to me again in an airport because I used to travel a lot with a um, notepad and he was looking for my autograph. He thought I was part of a band named Diamond Rio, which I don't even know. Bad country, I think. So I've heard of them. That's it. Yeah. All right. Tell us about your childhood. Are you local to Maine? Did you grow up in the woods there? Born and raised in Massachusetts. Um, I moved to Maine. I moved north every time I moved. I moved from suburban Mass to northern kind of rural Mass to southern rural New Hampshire to Maine. I've been in Maine 23 years, I think. How are the Red Sox doing this year? You know, I haven't been following them. Of course, as a Boston guy, I've uh, followed the Sox since back with Carly Ostremski and the Bruins with Bobby Orr and Larry Bird Celtics and uh, Tom Brady Patriots. It's a tough place not to like sports. Yeah. So what was your childhood like? Were you out in the woods and catching fish, all those locations you lived? Yep. I uh, was spent a lot of time with my grandparents. Uh, my grandpa was a, you know, kind of golden age sportsman, did everything. Um, I'm not, you know, I'm not sure he did anything that well, but he did it all. And that was very typical of that, that period. So we lived um, within a short walk of a lake called Crystal Lake in Newton. We had a beach buggy. We went to the Cape on uh, with an overnighted stripers. So Grampy put the fishing bug in me. Um, he, uh, I hunted for years. I don't need more just because I prefer to fish in the fall. So I've been fishing since I was a little child. Um, high school, even with the distractions, um, I still fished. Some of my friends called me the fishing fool because it's all I did. I fish 100 days a year. I've owned a fly shop, written five fly fishing books, hundreds of articles, I'm a fly designer for catch fly fishing in um, in Montana. I'm a regular writer for <clears throat> Midcurrent. Um, had a recent piece in Fly Fisherman. Have another one going in soon. I get a couple a year into um, American fly fishing, which used to be um, Eastern and Southeastern. And uh, I was the pu uh, publisher and. Eastern Regional Editor for Fly Fish America for years, column with a local hook and bullet called the Northwood Sporting Journal, a, col a door column, a guest column with the local newspaper up here, Bangor Daily. So I've been involved in advocacy for 20 years. Sportsman's Alliance of Maine Fishing Initiative Committee, uh, they're a big um, sporting org. Um, I've been a TU chapter founder and chair and state council. I uh, helped found a group called uh, Dud Dean Angling Society in Maine. So, But before all that, I was a software guy, and I checked out young, 42 years old, to pursue my dream. Good for you. You sound like a very busy guy. When you were younger, did you think writing and fisheries – be in your future at all no not in a million years uh, i mean i knew i liked to fish and 
I traveled a lot for work, so I had the good fortune of fishing, fishing around the country um, during both vacation and work. And I never thought I'd write. I mean, I did tech writing as an engineer, and I was did a stint in marketing. That was when some people told me that I wrote well. So um, when I moved to Maine, really, and uh, opened my fly shop, that's when I became active. I started a blog, really pushing for uh, better fishing regs more than native fish. But in Maine, it's fair to say that um, pushing for fishing and fishing regs in Maine is almost by default pushing for wild native fish. We don't have the problems that other states have with uh, this proliferation of um, non-natives or the demand for non-natives or etc. So an interesting little factoid is in Maine, if someone uses the term by itself, uh, it means brook trout. If if they mean rainbow trout, they say rainbow trout. If they mean brown trout, they say brown trout. But if they just say trout, they mean brook trout. And uh, it's been that way since I was a kid. So, um, so that was, you know, evolved into, you know, a much tighter focus. Uh, I learned early on, even when making my living in fly fishing, uh, I learned early on that um, fly fishing is going to do what it's going to do. I don't think it's necessary to society or the resource that fly fishing maintains. It's fun to do. It's probably a good distraction for kids who might otherwise be doing something less productive. Um, but I don't think it's like some incredibly necessary component of, uh, of life in the United States. And uh, so I don't promote fishing to the point that I promote, you know, fish conservation. That's what I would call myself. And even though I fish a hundred days a year, I've, I've been in a tent 30 nights this year already. Oh, I'm so jealous. All right. So before we, we get both of you guys on talking, can we just do some basic vocabulary for maybe somebody that's not a fisherman that just stumbled upon the podcast? Can we go over native fish introduced invasive wild and if you could give as many examples as you can because there's people listening all over the place that have cold water fish that have warm water fish there's people in salt water so if you've got anything in including just bizarre fun facts to entertain okay. everybody one of the things that we did early on we defined what our purpose was what our focus was what our terminology was. We put our terminology into our FAQ online. So there's no, um, you know, if there's any confusion as to who we are, what we do, what we mean, it's because the person doing it, it hasn't taken the time to read our website. Uh, let's start with wild. Wild means born in nature. Uh, uh, you can take it a step further and say born in nature of naturally um, deposited eggs. Um, that's more or less where we're at um, because uh, egg seeding is, is still a form of stocking. So born in nature of naturally deposited eggs, that's really simple, wild. And 
what we do is uh, most of the time, rather than inventing our own terms or or mutating existing terms, we, we use dictionary terms. That way, uh, somebody doesn't say, I just pulled this from my hind end. And uh, so native means indigenous, historically present. Uh, and it doesn't mean uh, indigenous to Pennsylvania, Maine, the continent. It means to that specific body of water. Uh, if we start applying geographic terrestrial boundaries to fish, uh, that's a can of worms because, excuse the pun, uh, because we end up uh, saying that, um, you know, fish that's native to Maine, southern Maine, isn't necessarily native to the northern half. And so then to eliminate any possible um, confusion, even though you can never eliminate confusion, we say wild native together most of the time. So that means a, uh, a historically present indigenous species uh, born in nature of, of naturally deposited eggs. That's what we are. And the term non-native means exactly that. It was uh, a fish that doesn't belong where it is not found. You know, fish can be native and non-native. It's native here. It's non-native there. Again, it's water level. Um, stock, that's a simple one. Uh, it was um, raised in a hatchery and deposited elsewhere. We'll go a step further, and, and we typically say that these, quote, transfers are, are just forms of stocking. It doesn't have to come from a hatchery to be a stocked fish. We start moving stuff around. You know, there's, it gets a little fuzzy because there's um, tr true translocations where we're moving, you know, wild native fish from one water to another water. It was historically present. But basically, stockfish, for the most part, comes from a hatchery. And there's issues with hatcheries, um, you know, primarily disease, um, high levels of domestication. Uh, invasive uh, is not necessarily synonymous with non-native. There are non-invasive non-native fish. And what it really means is that, and, and conversely, there's no such thing as an invasive native fish. Um, uh, if it was invasive and native, um, or if it was, if it didn't, if it co-evolved with its neighbor, they found a way to make it work. It's that simple. So when they say that there are non-invasive non-natives, it just means that their, that their impact on their aquatic ecosystem is, quote, minimal. Uh, the term invasive typically means that it causes harm to um, existing native species. Where it gets a little bit complicated is that fish at the species level, non-native fish, that would be considered non-invasive, maybe dace or a chub or something, or sculpin, um, the, in aggregate, multiple non-invasive fish can become invasive. So uh, we're kind of, um, while certainly invasive Species are your highest focus, the ones doing the most damage, snakeheads, um, golden shiners where they don't belong, smelts, brown trout, you know, on and on. Uh, bass are terrible right now. Bass are wreaking havoc all over the country.
small one. So the, uh, it's a little bit disingenuous when we start referring to non-native fish as non-invasive because, again, they might be non-invasive at the species level, but put enough non-invasive species and you have trouble. Um, if that fish, for some reason, explodes from a population standpoint, more so than we expect, uh, again, it can become invasive. Wild, native, stocked, non-native, invasive. Yeah, and to piggyback off what uh, Bob said, essentially, you know, um, you have non-native plus harm, you get invasive. And and an example that I think illustrates what Bob's saying about if you have something that is non-native and not necessarily harmful immediately, but in aggregate with other non-natives can cause harm. A good example of that for the listeners would be, um, you know, Flathead Lake, where lake trout were illegally introduced. You know, it was thought that they were not causing a problem in that, in that lake and that ecosystem for some time. And then all of a sudden, someone introduced mysis shrimp. So you had a non-native fish that did not seem to be causing harm, did not seem to be behaving as an invasive. But then all of a sudden, the mysis shrimp introduction gave them the food source that they needed to, you know, start increasing their population and growing. And then, you know, they did then have a very significant negative effect on the native in that lake. So, you know, sometimes non-native fish become invasive when either the ecosystem changes, the food base or the prey base changes, or the climate conditions change. The uh, Flathead Lake is an interesting um, case study because most of the, what people perceive or, or are invasive, most of the examples are uh, game species. They're, um, they're that trophic cascade, the classic top-bottom crash. We introduce an apex predator, hike over bass, bass over trout, browns over brook trout, whatever. And, you know, it just collapses. Flathead was a bottom-up collapse where the introduction, uh, so a little bit of history there is the lake trout were actually legally introduced upstream somewhere in the watershed in some other pond and they didn't move and they kind of stayed there. And then the uh, mysis shrimp were introduced legally by the state as part of um, a kokanee salmon um, stocking. And so there was a point out west where they wanted kokanee salmon, which is a landlocked form of uh, sockeye, and not, as far as I know, I'm not aware of any naturally occurring landlocked sockeye, um, but they're basically a, a landlocked form of sockeye. They are a planktivore, and uh, so they stock these mice of shrimp which is a, a tiny crustacean in these reservoirs to feed these kokanee populations. And then incidentally, these things were dropping through tailwaters all over the Colorado and growing gigantic fish in the Taylor River and the Blue River and stuff. And, but what happened on Flathead was that it apparently collapsed the zooplankton population. Then there was, uh, there were, bull trout in there and the bull trout were um, 
eventually their numbers went down for some reason. The lake trout numbers that had stayed down for decades actually exploded. The cuts and the and the, uh, the bulls pretty much went away. The kokanee were marginal, and it just became a big marginal um, stunted lake trout lake. And so, what's interesting about that one is it took years to sort out. A lot of people are used to these um, these introductions as being immediately harmful. And, and if they're not, they say, oh, there's some wonderful, peaceful coexistence between species, which is utter nonsense. And, uh, but we're seeing some stuff in Maine right now that nobody can really explain, but we're losing our landlocked Atlantic salmon uh, populations. Um, we had dozens when I was young that were really strong fisheries, albeit mostly non-native. And... Uh, we don't really have a good one anymore, not many. Um, we're seeing uh, non-native smelt, which were introduced to feed the salmon. They're not doing well either. So pretty much if the smelt aren't doing well, the salmon aren't doing well. So maybe this whole thing tracks back to the smelt. So why did Maine have strong smelt runs for decades and now we're struggling to maintain smelt in Moosehead and others? Well, everywhere we're struggling, they're non-native. So I think what we're learning is that these boom and bust cycles of non-natives, uh, sometimes it takes decades to play out. Sometimes it plays out in months and years. Uh, we're seeing, even though we've pounded browns and rainbows into streams in New Hampshire my whole life, we have very few self-sustaining uh, rainbow and brown trout populations. I would argue we have fewer right now than we've had uh, any time in my life. So after generations of stalking rainbow trout willy-nilly and white mountains in New Hampshire and brown trout here and there, and having, you know, several stable wild rainbow populations, um, I'm not seeing them. Uh, they're, one of them's blinked out completely, another one's... And there's one that I used to see browns. I haven't seen a brown in there for like two or three years. So, and yet the brook trout are, are still there. So what happened? It's not like somebody declared war on these rainbows and browns. We didn't do anything differently, yet they're not doing well. And I'm going to guess, go out on a limb here, and, you know, brook trout, they're a specialist. They're designed to live in eastern waters. And as things change through climate, whether this is permanent or temporary, I don't know. Um, but as these adjustments uh, occur, these changes occur, I, I always say that extinction is the race against time. Um, evolution, rather, is a race against time. Don't run fast enough and you become extinct. So I'm guessing and maybe hoping that our native species, be it cutthroat out west, brook trout in the east are better adapted to respond to change than the introduced species i would i would say i'm seeing it i can't prove it but you know i'm seeing all my friends in montana uh, they're all grousing about these uh, brown trout fisheries that are for reasons nobody really understands they're collapsing you know we got uh, obviously warming water when smallmouth bass show up in um in Gardner, 
Montana or in inside the park. Uh, just read where smallies of multiple age classes were just detected in Lee's Ferry. You know, prior to that, after decades of there being nothing but a self-sustaining rainbow population in the ferry, and I fished it for years when I worked in Arizona, uh, all of a sudden brown trout that had lived 25, 30 miles downstream for decades started showing up in the ferry. And the feds had to act because of endangered humpback chub and browns being highly piscivorous uh, fish eaters and and uh, the chubs being already uh, extremely stressed due to gin clear 50 degree water when they evolved to live in muddy warm water. Um, feds went in and started eradicating the browns best they could. And people were like, wild, uh, we're ruining a world-class fish. And I was like, wait a minute, we're not ruining anything because those browns weren't there uh, for 40 years that the ferry's been a fishery. So it wasn't like we're giving up anything. And it wasn't like the Fed had a choice. They had to act under the ESX. So, you know, we're seeing a lot of that stuff. And so I'm going to guess that some of, you know, what I've fought for is going to play itself out with or without us. Um, Does anything happen to the people that do the bucket brigades and dump smallmouth in places where they're not supposed to be? They dump snakeheads all over the place here. No one's ever been caught. Well, yeah. I mean, let's take snakeheads. That's kind of an easy one. Those are most likely not anglers. Those are most likely aquarium uh, owners who, and I don't know this for sure, but when they first started popping up and having had some aquariums in my life, I used to joke that if you want to understand what invasive is, drop a snakehead in with your guppies and stuff and you know, go on vacation for a weekend and come back. You'll see what invasive means. You know, you won't have another fish left in your aquarium because the snakeheads will eat everybody. They also grow faster than people think. So it was kind of like, you know, how these little caiman or whatever, caiman, whatever they're called, little alligators, this were popping up everywhere. It's why uh, virtually every pond and lake in Massachusetts has schools of goldfish and koi and so people had them, didn't know what to do with them, and they let them go. It's why we have red-eared slider turtles all through the Northeast. They're not an indigenous turtle, but they were the most popular aquarium turtles. So certain invasive fish, snakeheads, goldfish, uh, those are more likely to be introduced by non-sportsmen. Now, it's possible that some group of sportsmen decides they really like fishing for snakeheads and then they start moving around. But it's also equally as likely that the snakeheads are moving themselves in Maine. When I was young, uh, it was a wild native brook trout fishery with self-sustaining um, landlocked salmon, non-native salmon through much of it. There was a very unique to Maine um, wild rainbow fishery dating back to the old Gadabout Gaddis TV show in Bingham on the Kennebec under Wyman Dam. Uh, and uh, there were smallies up as far as my understanding was, uh, at least in a Madison, what they call Abnaki Dam. They'd been there turn of the century. They most likely were planted by the federal government. Uh, 
And so a dam kind of stopped them. So for the most part, there were no smallmouth from Caratunk Falls and Sol and Emden all the way to the headwaters of them, which would have been Moosehead Lake. And all up every tributary was clean. Well, now we have smallmouth bass throughout Moosehead, nipping into the lower um, Roach River, but they haven't seemed to get way up in it yet. They're in the Moose River, which is a tributary to Moosehead, all the way up to the first dam. They're in the Dead River, um, which is a wilderness river, 14 miles, 15 miles upstream to a waterfall. They're in virtually every tributary now, lower cold stream, Moxie right up to the falls. I mean, on and on and on. It's pretty clear that this started with one introduction, illegal introduction, most likely an angler, in either Moosehead Lake itself or Indian Pond, which is an impoundment just downstream of the lake, three miles down. For years, we thought it was Indian Pond because it had a, uh, a well-established um, and by fish, from a fishing standpoint, a good smallmouth bass fishery. Moosehead Lake didn't. So the assumption was always that somebody put them in Indian and uh, eventually they found their way into uh, Moosehead. I'm starting to think they were actually put in a Moosehead and some people agree. And that they- After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if we've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when I heard that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, what's the catch? But after talking to them, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, Go to mintmobile.com slash waypoint. That's mintmobile.com slash waypoint. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash waypoint. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Found their way downstream into Indian and just found better habitat. Moosehead's deep, big, giant, sprawling deep. And detection of a, of a non-native species, it's much harder in, you know, what is the largest lake entirely in Midland. So I'm going to guess that at one stocking in Moosehead Lake is responsible for all of the smallmouth bass through Moosehead Lake, through Indian, um, and on and on and on, all the way to the ocean now. So the other thing is uh, they were just detected in, in a wilderness area up here, um, second Debskinig uh, Lake. Somebody sent me a picture. Uh, I reported it because my database did not have smallmouth in that particular body of water. So now they're in two, two lakes deep into the Debskinig wilderness area. And they, those fish came out of the west branch of the Penobscot through another. So it doesn't take much to, for mother nature, better or worse, uh, to move these fish around. And this is one of the biggest risks is we think we can, either we don't think, we don't care, or we incorrectly believe that 
we'll just throw something over here and we'll benefit by it from as anglers and and life goes on but uh, my favorite brook trout pond ever round pond in somerset county maine it had a unique 18 one fish 18 inch minimum uh, length for most of my life had an ultra rare motorboat um restriction and what happened was um through the illegal use of gold shiners as bait in a 50-year fly fishing only pond they got in there they're now downstream in the next lake, Horseshoe Pond. They're downstream of that in a pond called Mud Pond, and I suspect they're probably already in Deadstream Pond. So what was at one time the finest wild native brook trout watershed in my area is in collapse under the weight of Golden Shiners. And you say that I again? Did you say 18-inch brook trout? It had an 18-inch minimum, one fish, 18-inch. Um, Maine is unique in that we still, like I just got back from eight days in the woods. My last fish on, you know, right as it turned dark, right at uh, dark fishing out the Hexagenia hatch, day eight uh, or night eight of an eight-day trip, uh, it, my last fish was 14, maybe 15-inch, big fat surface eating brook trout i probably caught five six fish 14 to 16 inches brook trout and um you know that this is um it's an interesting segue now into the discussion of brook trout as a game fish uh, the reason a lot of people have soured on brook trout is um is because they don't have access to big brook trout anymore. And they don't have access to big brook trout anymore because brook trout have been relegated to small streams in most of their, uh, much of their habitat. And in some cases, they were, old, they were always in small streams. Um, but when, when you still have brook trout in big rivers, when you still have brook trout in lakes and ponds, you will see big brook trout. Uh, the Rapid River in Maine, I mean, I've taken 20-inch brook trout out of there. McGalloway, I've taken, you know, 20-inch brook trout out of there. Um, and uh, those are river resident fish. They don't ever really leave the system. And uh, What does a fish that size eat? Bait fish patterns? Anything it wants. Uh, you know, this is a fish that can eat mice. It can eat, you know, the, it's interesting uh, from a pure angling standpoint, and I suspect it goes somewhat to their their habit and their diet. But like any other fish species, the pressure, angling pressure, changes their eating. Um, I, I tell people that these heavily fished waters, uh, they're not afraid of you because you can stand there in the same hole at spring creek and pa and nymph you know 10 fish out of it if you're good at what you're doing and you can stare at these fish and they're just like everywhere the swift river and mass they don't even seem to carry you there in fact they'll kind of eddy up under your legs um, when you're stand still so the as a protection while they're not afraid of you because they they've figured out that we're not really there to hurt them we're not grabbing at them so they just eat small what they have figured out is there's these legs in the water 
And if I'm not careful, I get this sharp poke in my face, and I'm next thing I know, I'm on the end of a line. So they eat smaller and smaller and smaller. And that's why, you know, you can go to the rapid and fish, you know, a size 18 zebra midge on 5X tippet for giant brook trout. Conversely, you go to Labrador where they don't see a lot of stuff and you can throw, uh, you know, a big green drag dry on them. You can drag a mouse across them. You can float a big bunny leech around them. And it's also why when you're walking a lightly pressured stream, you're scattering fish out of you because they see you as a threat, not what you're doing as a threat. No differently than they see, uh, you know, uh, a kingfisher diving at them as a threat or a otter swimming through. It's like pigeons let you get close. They just fly away, but they come back. They know we're not going. Yeah, because nobody does yeah. I mean, who's bothering pigeons? Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, um, you know, that's Mother Nature's way of, of protecting itself. Um, we just, while we were setting up camp, uh, we got this greenhouse up. We're on a dead end road. Uh, that's uh, old logging road and there's a trail to a pond right off the end of it. And we're all set up where the trucks kind of put, turn around. And I look down and there's four little eggs in a ground nest. So I was like, well, these probably been abandoned because trucks backing up. I'm surprised they weren't squashed. And, but just in case we staked it out and put some surveyors tape around it. Mother uh, Hermit Thrush showed up and spent the next eight days no further than, you know, six feet from the screenhouse door, two, three feet from the awning and the and the po uh, poles, in, uh, in and out of her nest all for eight days. And unless we stuck our heads way in it, she didn't uh, care. And and again, she didn't see us as a threat because we weren't doing anything to her. Um, but, you know, there's some bunnies around there, the hare, that, uh, you know, they get hunted enough that they see you, they kind of take off into the woods. And, and, you know, we have another example is we have um, fish-eating loons. I mean, we had a, uh, a loon harass us. I mean, it was chasing our, um, if we hooked up in one pond, uh, we hook up and the thing was diving over, darting under your boat, trying to get your fish. And that's probably because nobody hunts loons because you can't and you really shouldn't all right guys so pennsylvania native fish non-native fish wild and invasive let's hear what kind of work you do this is sort of a i'd say part two to james first podcast and this may be just part one of what we discussed today so guys talk about pennsylvania yeah, the first podcast was uh, my intent there was obviously more to just cover the kind of fisheries science. So generally the way it works is you have fisheries scientists and they kind of come up with research on how we can best manage our uh, native fish resources. And then they kind of throw that life preserver to management agent, you know, state agencies who are actually managing the fish. So that's a key difference for the layperson you were talking about, Rob, who may be listening to the podcast is you have the kind of fisheries science community who actually figures out how these things work and what we can do to kind of be the best stewards of them we can. 
And then you have, you know, state fish management agencies, like in Pennsylvania, we have PA Fish and Boat, and they're tasked with actually carrying out the management, um, you know, to benefit those resources, um, native fish for the, the public, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Um, and, you know, that that's the idea. Hence, their, their, um, their slogan is resource first, because that's what, you know, their, their, their uh, kind of responsibility is. So in Pennsylvania... We have uh, one of the things I want to highlight instead of focusing on as much of the, the fishery sciences in this episode, I wanted to focus more on the management. So does the rubber meet the road, you know, with the um, fisheries research we covered last time? So there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic for native brook trout conservation in Pennsylvania. At the same time, the other side of the coin is there's a lot of reasons to be highly concerned right now. And the reason for that is, is, the, the optimism stems from the fact that other states that uh, are surrounding Pennsylvania, Ohio, which people forget has brook trout um, in, in a small amount, uh, New Jersey, Maryland, West Virginia, New York, they have kind of taken this life preserver and recipe for success in some cases from the fisheries scientists and implemented some management that is, you know, backed up by good science and is actually, you know, now causing statistically measurable benefits to um, some of these brook trout populations. Just an example, like, you know, you have West Virginia underneath of Pennsylvania. And one of the big things we covered in the last episode was Shannon White's, you know, study that basically looked at brook trout movement and, uh, you know, its effect on conservation genetics and, you know, in, in the, the loyal sock system. That kind of showed us that, you know, these brook trout are using these large rivers as corridors to get to these smaller streams to share their genes. Basically, if we want to have brook trout around for more than just another couple decades, we need them to be mixing their genes to create genetic diversity. Because back to Bob's example of evolution, if you don't run fast enough, you go ex- you extinct. People forget that it's not just the streams that we can restore. We've actually done genetic damage to the fish themselves, and we can help the fish actually help themselves through adapting to things like climate change, other stressors. Basically, uh, West Virginia has kind of taken this this model for success where you manage brook trout not just in a, a tiny little stream section, but you actually manage them w- in the water they actually use throughout their life, which would be, in some cases, the entire sub-watershed, in some cases, the entire watershed. You know, in the last podcast, we talked about the kind of ridiculous example of, oh, you know, we found Rob in the bathroom, you know, one time, so he must only live in the bathroom. He must prepare his meals in the bathroom. He must sleep in the bathroom. That's kind of what happens during this electroshocking surveys in the summer. We find brook trout kind of, you know, holding on in these headwater streams looking for cold water. And we kind of forget that, you know, they use the other areas of the watershed for travel and finding, you know, in, you know enhanced foraging opportunities uh, to kind of pack on more calories throughout the rest of the year. And so in West Virginia, they have entire brook trout watersheds that they manage for brook trout. And they facilitate that movement and genetic adaptation through, you know, keeping them connected you know, not stocking them with invasive species like brown and rainbow trout in a lot of cases. 
And the other thing is they do catch and release because there's actually some there's actually some data for catch and release basically showing in the upper Savage River in Maryland, which I'll get to in a second, you know, they implemented catch and release regulations and they had a statistical uh, a significant increase or benefit to the population, as you can see in the, the state of Maryland's document um, that details their brook trout management project there. So the other thing that I, you know, I want to kind of point out is West Virginia is also doing these translocations or these reintroductions where there's streams that brook trout have kind of blinked out or been lost for one reason or another. And, you know, West Virginia is actually doing reintroductions where they are taking suitable, that's the key word, suitable brook trout that are genetically or kind of, you know, uh, as close as possible to their best guess of what would have lived in there. And then they're either translocating them directly into the streams for reintroduction or they are pr- taking you know um, wild native brook trout collecting the eggs fertilizing them spending min- as little time as possible in a hatchery and then you know using a conservation hatchery which is different than a sport hatchery a sportsman hatchery and then they use those for introductions so they, they actually have their own conservation hatchery in west virginia which is remarkable the other thing that west virginia has done differently uh, for its native fish than Pennsylvania has is we put a lot of these, um, you know, invasive trout species we've talked about. Brown and rainbow trout are in the top 100 most invasive species worldwide as ranked by the International Union Conservation of Nature. Um, you know, they're not just a little bit invasive. They're in the top 100. So, you know, West Virginia has recognized this and actually, you know, noticed that with an endangered candy darter and endangered guyandote crayfish, that, um, you know, the feds in West Virginia DNR have, you know, recognized this danger and they've actually stopped stocking brown trout over endangered candy darter and endangered guyando crayfish. Moving on to Maryland, you know, we touched on Maryland, you know, the upper Savage River is over 100 miles of contiguous, you know, well-connected stream that's managed for brook trout. It's catch and release. It's, you know, there's minimal to no stocking that goes on there. And essentially, it's a system where the brook trout can move, you know, from tributary to main stem to another tributary. And, uh, you know, the results are, you know, the results are obviously, you know, they they have, they they get brook trout that get seven years old in that system. You know, in Pennsylvania, these brook trout are surviving two and three years and then they're done. Savage River, they got mid-teens and inches. You know, it's not uncommon to catch a 14-inch brook trout in, you know, the Savage River system, the upper Savage River system. And, you know, they're living to seven years. And, you know, so they've quite, you know, obviously, by using this kind of whole watershed management, you know, recommendation that's come down from people like the Eastern Brook Trout Joint Venture, the fisheries science community, you know, these states have taken that life preserver for their native brook trout and they're thriving in a lot of these systems in ways that ours just aren't in Pennsylvania because we're not currently implementing this. Another thing in Maryland is they're doing a removal project of invasive brown trout in the Catoctin Mountains. Um, we have not done a single one of those to date in PA. Uh, it, it's, you know, so these are just some, some uh, contrasts between Maryland and, and uh, West Virginia, but you still have, you know, uh, New York, New Jersey, Tennessee, North Carolina, South Carolina, everyone's doing some of this stuff with the reintroductions or the, uh, you know, the removals and whatnot. But getting more specific uh, on PA, kind of, kind of, you know, dialing down to PA, if you look at what has PA done? Well, when you, there's a document on the Eastern Brook Trap Joint Venture. 
that kind of looks at what each state has done in terms of like reintroductions and removals. There is one stream in Pennsylvania, it's called Big Spring. There are native brook trout in Big Spring. And uh, on that document, it's listed that there has been a reintroduction uh, done by PA Fish and Boat in Big Spring. That bothers me a little bit because they still stock hatchery brook trout in that stream. So if you're doing a reintroduction, like I said earlier, the genetics is very important. The key word was suitable. You want to use uh, suitable fish. So if you're doing a serious reintroduction, it doesn't really behoove you to then continue to introduce hatchery brook trout because you're providing kind of genetic pollution, uh, the potential for genetic, genetic pollution in a sense. In Pennsylvania, another thing that we don't do particularly well that other states have kind of changed is, you know, we stock a lot of brown trout and rainbow trout over top of native brook trout. Uh, other uh, states such as Maryland, they don't even stock brown trout over native brook trout anymore. But Bob, what else do you have to kind of add to Pennsylvania in terms of what's kind of significant with uh, going on management-wise? I think we lost Bob. Just when oh. he called his name. What about... Oh, sure, go ahead. Big Hunting Creek in Maryland is known as a what? I almost said wild. Why yeah, wild non-native brown trout fishery? They haven't stocked it since the 60s or 70s, maybe. Are they going to try and eradicate browns out of there? I have to would I'd have to actually uh, inquire about that. Is that in the Catoctin Mountains? Yes, it's okay, right near Camp David. Okay, because there's one removal project that is going on in the Catoctin Mountains, and it actually could be. Uh, Big Hunting Creek. I'd have to reference the specific name. I know that that uh, Maryland has partnered uh, with another agency to do removal down there. I just have would have to look up the name. His client and beer tie attendee Scott just cleaned up up there the other day, doing some Euro nymphing on Browns. Oh, did he? Wow. Yeah, that, that, I, there's a lot of them um, in the Catoctins. I know that because I've seen that. Uh, you know, that's where some of the removal is. Interesting. Is focused. Yeah, I've really only heard the Catoctins as a rookie fishery but i guess they've got to be somewhere else up in there yeah you know it's it's funny uh even in pennsylvania there's streams that kind of the anglers and even the pennsylvania fish and boat commission would tell you are only brook trout you know the fancy scientific word for that's allopatric meaning you know the brook trout are just there by themselves but even those streams that we consider as quote-unquote brook trout streams you know, when they electroshock them, you know, uh, the majority of them, they still find a, a small number of brown trout. It may not be an overwhelming number. It may not be a, um, a population that's large enough where people consider it as a fishery. But uh, that's kind of concerning because these are listed as brook trout waters. And we, we actually probably have less true brook trout waters in Pennsylvania than we think we have. And, and Bob can speak to this as well. You know, that we've lost a lot of brook trout uh, in Pennsylvania already comparatively, um, you know, to um, to other states. Okay. Bob, can you hear us? Yeah, I got bumped off by a storm cloud. Um, no worries. We, we've got clouds coming here soon, too. But um, I have terrible coverage. What I'd like to do is um, I'm a little feel like we've got a little bit out ahead of the big picture. I mean, we can talk about who's done what with brook trout, where and how, all we want. But the real issue in PA is 
where are we? How do we get there? Why do we get there? And why are, you know, people like NFC, why would we even waste our time in Pennsylvania? Or why do we see it as important? Uh, because the, you know, I just, I get concerned that we get too deep into the minutia before we, we hit the underlying problem. I've fished PA for 40 years on and off. I worked heavily in, in Maryland and, uh, and DC and Virginia and, and, I would say that no state in the East has lost more brook trout habitat than Pennsylvania. I would say no state in the East has a bigger, more active, and more um, absolute um, um, non-native fish, um, primarily trout, uh, following than Pennsylvania. Uh, I just did a podcast with Matt Sapinski, currently of Michigan, but he's a, a born and bred PA. And, and, you know, we spent half the thing, the podcast debating whether brown were um, invasive or not for brook trout. Uh, I, I just went through the sim something similar with Kirk Dieter, where he said, you know, of Trout Unlimited, where he said he, quote, bristled or whatever, um, when people referred to brown trout as uh, invasive. And I think he has Pennsylvania roots. And when NFC went to the Lancaster show, we've been to a lot of shows. And the young folks embraced what we were doing. But people my age, they came over to our booth and challenged, you know, why are you here? What can you possibly do that, you know, we're not already doing? And, and so I saw this, you know, firsthand what, why Pennsylvania has the, has lost more brook trout habitat than any state in the East. And, and people who, who, you know, don't agree with that statement, I say, show me, um, you know, I fished, Big both big fishings, uh, falling spring latort, big spring, um, uh, you know, lower spruce, uh, pine, little pine, pens, <laughs> spring creek, on and on and on. The and legends. legends. Yeah, and I've never encountered any brook trout. And, um, I, you know, the only brook trout I found in Pennsylvania were up in the Bushkill area. And even there, I was bumping into a mix stocked and and that and under below certain barriers i was seeing you know mixed species and so uh, it, are we to believe that penn's creek can't support brook trout maybe even big brook trout um, are we to believe that none of these waters were brook trout fisheries um historically we all know that big spring is the um you know, last of the name um, limestoners with a viable brook trout fishery. And we know that we get some good brook trout, even doing everything wrong with regard to effluent and dissolved oxygen and on and on. We were still, those brook trout survived as kind of a, a you know, just the, that was the notice that we, that Pennsylvania could have big brook trout. I mean, that that's the reason why I used to say that, you know, it's possible that no state in the East will reject our message more than Pennsylvania. 
and yet no state in the east needs a native fish coalition more than pennsylvania um, if you care about brook trout if you care about true aquatic um, conservation you know there is no conservation in wild non-native fish in fact they're counter conservation it's all about fishing uh, so and uh, stuff about how you know somehow these wild non-native trout are um, are quote placeholders for brook trout that's nonsense as well because they're not placeholders they're in most cases why there aren't brook trout and so way beyond we way beyond starting to pit PA against other states or talk about what other states are doing, I think it's important that we understand why PA isn't doing it. Um, I think we could feed PA examples of what's happening elsewhere till we were purple. And I don't believe we're going to make any um, headway because I don't think people, you know, there's a market for it, or at least not a big market. So it's kind of like with PA, you got to go back to the beginning and find out um, why did anglers sour to brook trout in Pennsylvania? Why did fishing game sour not only to brook trout, but to, uh, in many cases, wild trout in general? As bad as the situation in Pennsylvania is with brook trout, and when I say bad, I mean they've been driven into headwaters in a state that's super rich in potential bigger brook trout streams. Uh, it's also the most undisciplined stocking I've ever seen in my life where people, when, I, when I've been down there, I did a book tour for a while um, and all any of my hosts wanted to show me was their private hatcheries and stuff, private stocking programs. And, you know, these big, quote, trophy fish that are, you know, dumped in every couple of weeks or whatever, with big shredded tails and stuff. And, and I was like, it's interesting that a state with the miles, I think it's the most miles of, uh, of cold water habitat in the east, one of the most in the country, with a fishing legacy and heritage that, you know, is unmatched in the east. Um, more trout fishing literature and innovation came out of PA than anywhere other than, you know, the Catskills and, you know, Rangeley, Maine. So the, the somehow, way before we start saying what we need for programs in, in PA, we've got to try to change the culture to some degree. It, it's also interesting that it has either the biggest Trout Unlimited in the East or possibly the country, and yet I'm not seeing a lot of movement in regard to um, to wild native fish. So this problem, and in fact, of the older, my age and older, people who challenged our mission, challenged me personally, whatever, in the Lancaster show, I'd say two-thirds of them were active affiliates of local TU chapters. So if TU's not plugged in and bought in at the national, state, and chapter level, well, you ain't going to budge fish and game without 
you know, having support of Trout Unlimited. Now, I know from watching from afar that Philip Light and James and them are making progress with certain groups down there. And, and, and we're seeing progress, you know, nationally right now. We're seeing the industries buying the native fish thing. And, but, you know, PA is, is a real challenge. Um, how, where do you draw the line in PA? Is it a matter of just stopping the bleeding and saying, that's it, we're not gonna lose any more brook trout water? Is it a matter of stopping the bleeding and maybe trying to regain some stuff? Um, is it a matter of, you know, trying to regain some of this fringe, um, you know, a slight, you know, the one of the things we always say about this, this threat of, you know, NSC sweeping through the nation with buckets of rotenone and helicopters and bombing every brown trout fishery in the country, um, it's utter nonsense. Uh, we couldn't get the permitting. We wouldn't have the money. It wouldn't work. And so... The areas where we we would initially try to regain, those are those, you know, mixed species streams that, you know, the brown trout are typically less frequent than the brook trout. They're no bigger. The brown trout loyalists are not looking for those fish because they're puny little brown trout. And, you know, so, that, so the next question then becomes, uh, you know, is there room in Pennsylvania for some true marquee wild native brook trout fisheries? Are there some rivers? But, but again, you got to get back to why. Why is the resistance to brook trout management um, so high in Pennsylvania? Um, and why, um, you know, the, they're podcasts about, you know, the, I've never seen a more active group of, of anglers, um, a group of anglers more actively um, promoting and protecting, you know, wild non-native fish in my life. So one of the things I see is that in many states, you know, the, the primary problem, it's fishing game because there are, are, our line of first defense. Uh, if they're not educating the angling community in regard to stewardship, management, native fish stocking, then the whole thing collapses. Uh, but you know, so that's that's what I'd like to talk about is why, how did Pennsylvania lose its brook trout culture? Um, I mean, I, it's a mystery to me. I'm not down there enough to see it. And I live in a very pro-brook trout state. You know, I see it to a lesser degree in New Hampshire where, you know, the old guys have given up on brook trout and they're chasing stock rainbows and browns around. But the young guys aren't, the young people. They're in the woods. They want brook trout. And, you know, is that what it takes in Pennsylvania? Are we just a generation too early? Is it a matter of just you know, doing what we've been doing, which is appeal to the young people who seem to want a more natural experience. And, and uh, but, you know, so that, that's, that's my big challenge and question has always been, um, you know, wh what is, what will the Pennsylvania angler accept as far as, you know, brook trout conservation goes? Because if they want it, um, they influence 
state fishing game uh, if they're willing to speak up one of the things we've learned over the years is the uh, you know the consumptive angler um, they show up at every hearing um, nobody shows up like the consumptive angler he you know he'll stand his ground he'll fight for his quote right and the fly guys you know they stay home they don't want to get dirty or or whatever and um so, Rob, you live there. You know way more than I do. You podcast, you talk to people. Do you find support for wild native brook trout in Pennsylvania? I honestly don't I hear don't too many people down here going up to Pennsylvania to look for brook trout. It's going to be Lake Erie tribs in the fall, or it's going to be the classic south central limestone streams yeah to speak to what bob said what starts with the fish and game or in here in pennsylvania we you know it's called fish and boat here you know i think that like what bob was saying there's a messaging issue surrounding the value of native brook trout you know um and i think rob what your your perception of pennsylvania you know living down there in you know the dc area it, like you said you know it's the lake erie tribs for the uh you know rainbow trout that run out of the lake it's the kind of uh, you know classic you know limestone spring creeks for uh you know the non-natives and you know a lot of that starts with uh you know kind of not good communication of the value of native brook trout to the you know the general public and even beyond the angling public you don't really hear much uh about brook trout from pa fishing boat and you know, the value of a native species going back to our original discussion is some people think it's just, oh, you know, like, I mean, they were there first, but it's not just that they were there first. It's like uh, Bob said that it's evolution, which has made them suited to live there with the other species they co-evolved with. And yes, there have been changes in the landscape, but that's still a very valuable process that's happened. And, you know, that's the value in native brook trout is they'll maintain a, a higher biodiversity, meaning more other species that evolve around them than versus we know with invasive species, you know, the trend is towards, you know, loss of biodiversity and loss of different native species. So that's, you know, kind of the value. Let's change the question. Can, do we believe PA can have brook trout outside of its headwater streams? biologically that's a good question uh, you know one of the things we hear is you know people have convinced themselves that brown trout have some notably unique um, requirements habitat requirements that make them more suitable to water that you know brook trout supposedly can't live in and yet I, you know, we see brook trout in 50-degree tailwaters out west eating, you know, tiny little uh, little midges and stuff. Um, conversely, you know, we see these brook trout in these unusually sterile granite, you know, New England freestones that are, you know, under ice for six months of the year. So I do hear more from Pennsylvania that like somehow these waters couldn't have brook trout. And yet um, when I've been there and the places I've fished, um, I find it really difficult to believe that while Big Spring 
with all of its historic problems, was able to maintain large brook trout, but Latour can't, Falling Springs can't. I don't believe it. I believe it's a choice we made. We managed um, Latour for brown trout. We managed um, Falling Springs for rainbow trout. And I know that's shifted around. Some more brook trout are showing up in Falling Springs and whatever. And Latour's not fishing that well at all. And so, you know, that's <clears throat> the messaging. Uh, Maine doesn't talk about its native fisheries nearly as much as it should. And yet they're the number one draw. Uh, there is no more crowded waters um, in Maine than the rain. Uh, Rapid River in the uh, Magalloway. And coincidentally, it's the biggest river brook trout you'll get in the east. Um, and uh, is heavily restrict fly fishing only, you know, barbus hooks, catch release, whatever, whatever. So, you know, it kind of defies what they say, which is, you know, people that restrictive water regulations result in less traffic, which most people know is nonsense. But, you know, so the messaging in Pennsylvania and the role that a that an NFC can play, especially anchored at the local grassroots level with residents, not some guy from Maine, uh, is to find that critical mass. Where are the people who want more from their fisheries, uh, that want the not only wild native fish, but natural abundance, natural age distribution, good healthy populations. And, you know, to date what we've learned, it's young people. Um, young people have totally different, they don't want to chase stocking trucks. They're tired of, you know, elbow to elbow fishing. They're tired of, of uh, you know, manufactured trophies, you know. That, so, you know, they're gonna, have more influence and they're going to have a different perspective than what the old rank and file Pennsylvania, you know, uh, state college and, and, um, and Harrisburg angler has similar to what we see now in the Catskills, uh, the loyal cat. I don't go to the Catskills uh, or at least the, the classic rivers anymore. They're all stocked. They're overfished. Uh, you know, the big draw down there, it's the younger people who are fishing the West Branch, Delaware, the East Branch. It's not the, um, the, the beaver kill and the willow mock, uh, not to the degree it was at one point. And maybe that's what's going to happen in PA. But NFC needs to focus on a couple things. One is message. Um, Make sure people understand, you know, what you've lost, how, how you've lost it, um, and, you know, and, and is it worth saving? Is it worth preserving? Is it worth increasing? And, you know, I tell people, don't spend too much time worrying about those who can't be changed. Uh, the other thing is don't pick fights you can't win. Um, you know, you're not going to turn Penn's Creek into a brook trout fishery anytime soon, if ever. Um, so, you know, it, it's back to the, you know, the the headwaters with some attempt to expand into some 
bigger waters to grow bigger fish. Um, and so, you know, it's, there's other things on the horizon. The, the hatchery model, it's not economically sustainable over the long term. Our numbers are plummeting. Whether plummeting is a fair term or not, and sporting numbers, sporting license numbers, while they're sawtooth, they've been on a relative steady decline for 20 years. And, you know, maybe hunting's dropping faster than, than fishing, and maybe certain kinds of fishing are dropping faster than others. I mean, clearly, there's a pretty darn strong, you know, serious bass engine out there, uh, bass fishing. Uh, there's a, a pretty strong, you know, trout fly fishing market where I think we're losing. And this is quite interesting. It's the casual consumptive angler seems to be somewhat disappearing. And they're the ones that we built this model for this this put and take model if they go away um you know i'm not sure we want to continue that or we can but you know costs are going up feed costs um trucking costs staffing costs on and on and on and you know we're going to get this sad and somewhat unfair little stay of execution as a result of COVID infrastructure money that's being pumped into hatcheries right now, which when you think about it is pretty obscene considering that, you know, they benefit anglers are 20% of the population, 10 to 20, depending on the state, cold water anglers are some percentage of that total mass. Cause there's a bunch of people who never fish trout. And then of course, you know, um, anglers that fish um, stock waters, you, you file that number down, we're probably putting, you know, in some states, 20, 50 million dollars into something that benefits five to 15% of the population. That's obscene. And, uh, you know, but it's happening. Uh, you know, the other thing is that it's become a, an, a sadly subsidized model where, uh, the, it doesn't take much of an economic example to show that the whole bottom would fall out of this put and take um, model if all of us took everything we could. That thing would just collapse. So it only works because of all the people that either don't fish stockfish, don't kill stockfish, whatever, whatever. Conversely, you take the person who is taking advantage of that resource, who's harvesting that resource, you know, on a $25 resident fishing license, you know, five fish, and you've, you know, you've paid your, uh, you've eaten your, uh, your license. All right. We're about to run out of time again. <clears throat> Keep going a little bit more. Whatever you guys want. Um, what I'd like to do is, you know, let's have a little more question and answer about um, what is, you know, what's going on in PA? How did PA drift so far off of the general, you know, fish conservation thing? Uh, as I said, I live in Maine. I get it. We got, you know, an avid smallmouth bass following. We now have a muskie following. We got ice fishermen who like pike. But, um, but for some reason, Mainers like brook trout. 
Maine and New Hampshire and Vermont. You know, they got their problems, but they haven't lost their brook trout angler to the degree, you know, the PA has. Thank you for joining us for the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. For more information or to contact Rob, please go to www.robsnowwhite.com. This podcast is brought to you by Freestone Productions at freestoneproductions.com.